0: why is it important that jesus fulfilled scripture in matthew 5 17 jesus says do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all this is accomplished. One of the great themes in the book of Matthew is the fulfillment of Scripture. That word fulfillment comes up a lot in the book of Matthew, and it means to bring something to completion or to bring a prophecy, promise, or prayer to its designated end. The word liter- literally means t- to make something or someone full. So it's like when you're filling up a glass of water or you're being filled up with food on Thanksgiving. Uh, the the, The theme of fulfillment is throughout the whole book of Matthew and it's immensely important. But we can miss it really easily. God put references to the Old Testament in the Bible for a reason. So today I would like to take the time to dwell on what God has to tell us about these references to the Old Testament. So turn with me to Matthew 2, verse 13, which is the first book in the New Testament right before the book of Luke. We'll be going to the Old Testament too, so you'll want to keep a finger in Matthew um, as we flip around. Matthew 2, verse 13. Now, it's, it's been a while since I've preached from the book of Matthew, so I'd like to remind you shortly about where we're at in Matthew chapter 2. So in the first half of Matthew chapter 2, we read about the Magi who came from the east to worship Jesus. When they came, King Herod asked the spiritual leaders of Israel where the Messiah was to be born. And they told Herod that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, You see, the leaders of Israel knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem because they knew that it was prophesied in the Old Testament. By telling us about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, Matthew is making a geographical argument. Matthew is telling us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem just as the prophets predicted he would be, despite the common understanding that Jesus was from Nazareth. Now the main point of our text today that we'll be covering is the same main point as the first half of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew will continue to make three more geographical arguments for Jesus as the Messiah. When Matthew is pointing us to these geographical locations in Matthew chapter 2, he is doing that to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. And that's our main point today. Um, that's the only thing you get from this sermon, that's what you need to get. Um, Now, if Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, that means that he's bringing the Scriptures to their designated end. He's bringing them to completion. He's bringing the prophecies and promises of Scripture to their designated end. Matthew is going to show us three things that happened when Jesus was born, that fulfilled the scriptures. These events are going to show us that the places Jesus went as a child were part of God's story from the very beginning. Where these things happened was important. In order to fulfill the scriptures, these three things happened. Jesus came up out of Egypt, a cry from Bethlehem was heard in Ramah, and Jesus came up from Nazareth. He, he grew up in Nazareth. So, Jesus came up out of Egypt. A cry from Bethlehem was heard in Ramah. And Jesus came from Nazareth. Those are our three points for today. Matthew is trying to show us that these things happened in these places so that Jesus might be demonstrated as the fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, let's jump right into these three geographical arguments for Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures. First turn to Matthew 2 verses 13 through 15. And it says, Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. A lot can be said about God's protective care over Jesus and his family and Joseph's faithfulness to follow God's warning. Uh, But today, I'm going to be focusing on these Old Testament texts. Um, Everything that happens in Matthew chapter 2 was to fulfill scripture. God had an agenda for Jesus that Joseph did not know about. God wanted Jesus to go to Egypt. But why Egypt, of all places? Well, what made Egypt a significant place of refuge for the people of Israel, for God's people, um, there was actually a large population of Jews who lived in Egypt at that time. At that point, Egypt had become the traditional place of refuge for God's people who were fleeing from Israel. There was a huge population of Jews that lived in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Roughly one-third of Alexandria's population was Jewish at the time, and there are estimated to have been around a million Jews living in and around Alexandria at that point. I I find it ironic that Egypt, the place where they were held captive, where God's people were enslaved, became the traditional place of refuge for God's people. Um, Despite the fact that Egypt was a good place of refuge for the Israelites, God wanted Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt for a specific reason. Read with me in Matthew 2:15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. God wanted Joseph and his family to go to Egypt so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, what scripture is Matthew referencing here? If you are reading this for the first time, which you're not, because we've read it earlier in Hosea 11, if you had no idea where, this, where in the Bible this was beforehand, uh, you're not alone. I had no idea. I think when we read the New Testament, a lot of times we come across stuff that we don't fully understand where, where they're quoting in the Bible, and it's good to look that up. So, in order to understand this reference, we're going to need to go back to Hosea 11, verse 1. So, turn your Bibles now to Hosea. Hosea is one of the minor prophets. It's toward the end of the Old Testament after Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Hosea 11, verse 1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the first thing you'll notice about this verse is that it doesn't seem to be about Jesus at all. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The son being referenced here is Israel. You see, in the Old Testament, God would often speak about the nation of Israel as if they were his own child. But if this text is about Israel, then why does Matthew think it's about Jesus? Well, the problem isn't the way that Matthew is reading the Bible. The problem is with the way we read ours. You see, when we, when we think of biblical prophecy, we like to think of all the clear and direct prophecies like the, like the prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That's the way we typically think of prophecy. Um, and just to be clear, there are plenty of direct prophecies throughout Scripture. Isaiah 53 is, is one of the clearest predictions of Jesus in the whole Old Testament, and it's a really great example of that. But when the disciples of Jesus reread their Old Testament... Their knowledge of Jesus enlightened their understanding of the Old Testament. They saw things that they never noticed before. And the connections that they drew were not always obvious. It may be helpful to make a comparison to how we read stories in literature. Um, in literature, we have some really good examples of direct prophecy. For example, in Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. R. Tolkien wrote this he wrote from the ashes a fire shall be woken a light from the shadow shall spring renewed shall be the blade that was broken the crownless again shall be king Tolkien wrote this prophecy in his story so that his audience would anticipate the climax of the story the king would come again and the shards of the king's sword would be reforged and all the elements in this prophecy are literal the blade is a sword. The king is a king. This is an example of direct prophecy. But direct prophecy is not the only tool in a writer's toolbox. Authors will use foreshadowing and repeating themes to build anticipation towards the climax of a story to bring it to completion. And it's not until after we see the ending of the story that we can see how clearly the author was showing us that ending to begin with. One of my favorite examples of this is in the movie The Incredibles. Um, Near the beginning of the movie, Edna Mode, one of the best characters ever made for a movie, uh, makes a big deal about how she would not make Mr. Incredible a suit with a cape. She warns Mr. Incredible about all the superheroes who got killed by their own capes, And she prohibits him from wearing a cape. She says, no capes, no capes. But as the story progresses, we we eventually meet the supervillain of the story, who wears a cape. And at the end of the movie, in a bit of dramatic irony, the villain gets his cape caught in a jet turbine. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Now, after seeing the movie, what Edna says becomes more meaningful. It was setting us up for the fulfillment of that plot point in the story. Only after we have seen the ending can we see that the screenwriters were setting us up for that supervillain's defeat all along. He was defeated by his own cape. That plot point was the fulfillment of the screenwriter's intentional foreshadowing. Now this is an example of indirect prophecy. Edna Mode did not tell us directly what would happen at the end of the movie, but what she said was intended by the author of the story to find its fulfillment in that ending. God is the author of all history and when he wrote his story, he not only intended his direct prophecies to find their fulfillment in Christ, He also intended for the themes and shadows of Scripture to find their fulfillment in Christ as well. These themes and shadows find their fulfillment in Christ even when they're not directly predicting anything. That's why this text is about Jesus. Read with me again in Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This text is about God's son. The theme of sonship can be traced throughout all of scripture. It's not something that you find in just one verse. In Deuteronomy 14.1, God calls the people of Israel his sons. He says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And while Israel was described as the sons of God in Deuteronomy 14, Hosea 11.1 is speaking of them figuratively in the singular my son. He's not saying sons, he's saying my son. This is significant because the theme of sonship is developed further in the story of David. God tells David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I shall establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, the Messiah that would come from the line of David was to be known as the Son of God. This was directly prophesied. The early Jews would have known this. So any biblical text referring to the Son of God could have easily been seen by early Jews as potentially messianic, referring to the Messiah. We see this in, is the case in Psalm 2, verse 7. In Psalm 2:7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This text, Psalm 2:7, is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. It's quoted once in the book of Acts and two times in the book of Hebrews, every single time the New Testament authors make it clear that the the son being referenced here in Psalm 2 is Jesus. It's the Messiah. When we read in Psalm, when we read Psalm 2-7 ourselves, it doesn't always seem clear, but when you read Psalm 2-7 in light of God's promise to David, it makes perfect, perfect sense. But let's go back to our text in Hosea 11, verse 1, one last time. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. One of the most difficult parts about this text is that it's referring to something in the past. The exodus of God's people from Egypt. So how could Matthew think that this was about the Messiah in the future? We need to look further at the context of Hosea 11. Um, Hosea goes on in the, the rest of chapter 11 to describe Israel as a wayward son. God promises Israel that he won't allow them to go to fall back into the hands of the Egyptians, but he tells them that they would fall into the hands of the Assyrians. God is warning them about the deportation to Assyria. After Hosea 11 was written, Assyria brought the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. This is known as the Assyrian captivity. Both the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities spread the Jews across the globe, which is why there were so many Jews in Egypt when Jesus went there. Even though God told Israel that they would be taken captive by Assyria, God promised them that they would return to the promised land. In Hosea 11.11, he writes this. Look further down the page at Hosea 11 to verse 11, which was the last verse we read earlier today in our reading. In Hosea 11.11, it says, God's children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So while Hosea 11 verse 1 is about God calling his children out of captivity in Egypt in the past, God's promise 10 verses later is for their future. Just as God called his children out of Egypt before, he was going to do so again. That's why Hosea 11 verse 1 is about Jesus. Hosea was telling us that God's deliverance in the past would be played out again in the future. This time with his only begotten son. Jesus was the first exile in a long line of of exiles that would be brought home to the promised land. Romans 8.29 says that we are conformed to the image of God's son so that Jesus might be the firstborn of many brothers. So if Jesus is the firstborn among his brethren... Then when he came up out of Egypt, he was doing so as one of the children of Israel, but also as the son of God. Just as God called his son Israel out of Egypt before, so he did again by calling his only begotten son out of Egypt. So you see, Hosea 11.1 is about the exodus, but it's also a plot point in history that was played out again more fully in the life of Jesus. Isn't God's word rich? Uh, There's so much behind this text, but all this is to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1 met its climax in Jesus Christ. Now, there's two ways you can take Matthew's argument here. You can see his argument in a glass half-empty sort of way, or you can see it in a glass-full way. Either this argument will satisfy you, or it will not. Sometimes when we scratch the surface of the Old Testament, we can end up even more discouraged and doubtful than we were before. In preparing for this sermon, I wrestled and struggled with these references to the Old Testament. Each Old Testament text I read for this sermon today was disheartening at first. None of these arguments that Matthew is making are from direct prophecy. If I were to just take them at face value, I would be tempted to think that um, these weren't even about Jesus at all. But what is easier? Is it easier for Jesus to fulfill just a few direct prophecies from the Old Testament or all the shadows and themes of Scripture? I'm encouraged by Matthew to see Jesus as the Son of God who came up out of Egypt just like the sons of Israel did in the Exodus. I'm encouraged to see him as the fulfillment of God's promise that he would return the children of Israel to the promised land. Jesus paves the way for us back to the promised land. He walked that road for us first. And the thing keeping us from the promised land is the same thing that drove Israel away in the first place, our sin. So have faith. Don't let Matthew's argument here discourage you when it's intended for us to see Jesus in all his fullness. See the glasses full. Next, let's turn to Matthew 2, verse 16. Flip back to Matthew chapter 2. We'll continue with Matthew's narrative of the life of Christ with our second point. Point number two, a cry from Bethlehem was heard in Ramah in fulfillment of the scriptures. Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18, and it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Excuse me. (coughs) This is also a very difficult text to read. The Old Testament reference here is pretty obscure. um, And the subject matter is hard. Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. So we're going to turn again to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Jeremiah is towards... The middle of the Bible, right after the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Here's what it says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. The text Matthew is quoting here is almost word for word from Jeremiah 31. Uh, but there's a lot behind this text that's difficult for us to understand. First off, where in the world was Rama? Uh, Rama was the historical hometown of Samuel the prophet, and it was a very important city throughout the history of the Israelites. And most importantly, in Jeremiah 40, verse 1, we learned that Ramah was the historical location where the Babylonians collected the captives of Israel um, and staged them for deportation to Babylon. This was the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was deported uh, by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was deported by the Babylonians. But why is Rachel connected with the city of Ramah? You see, Rachel was the mother of Benjamin, and Ramah was located within the tribe of Benjamin. And the city was located just north of Jerusalem. Um, In Genesis 35, we learn that Rachel died giving childbirth to Benjamin while on a journey from Bethel, which is just north of Ramah, down to Ephrath, which was just south of Jerusalem. And if that confuses you, just think about it it like it's a line. The road that she was going down was going from north to south. At the very top, you have Bethel. Then you have Ramah right here. And then Jerusalem right here. And then Ephrath down here. It was a straight line, and it went through all those cities. Um, Rama was on this road, and according to Genesis 35, Rachel's tomb was also located on this same road. And the road would have been like a day's journey to get, go through all of those cities. So I looked up the size of Israel. It's smaller than the size of Indiana, which is weird to me. So much happened in Israel, but to think of it, that it's even smaller than Indiana. Um, But Rachel's tomb was located on this road, and this was the same road that the Israelites would have used on their journey to Ramah during the deportation to Babylon. According to Jeremiah 52, verse 28 through 30, about 4,600 men were deported in three waves to Babylon. And since only the male male heads of the household were counted at that time, some estimate that up to 20,000 men, women, and children were deported from Rama in total. Um, Just for comparison, the closest example that we have in American history is the Trail of Tears where about 60,000 Native Americans were sent out west over 20 years. um, But the deportation to Babylon was a period of intense collective sorrow for the people of Israel. It's it's a tragedy not unlike the story of Rachel herself. When Rachel gave birth to Benjamin, she named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, son of my vigor. Rachel gave her life for the birth of her child. And the name she gave him was a reminder that she would give everything for her child. Throughout Israel, Rachel was known for her intense love for her children. That's how Israel remembered her. And when the people of Israel marched past her tomb and were gathered in Ramah on their way to Babylon, it was as if they could hear her weeping for her children and crying out from her tomb. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But if this text is about the deportation to Babylon, then why does Matthew think this is about the massacre at Bethlehem? Well, the tomb of Rachel was commonly known to have been along that same road, From Bethel to Ephrath. But Ephrath was also known by another name, Bethlehem. We read this in Genesis 35, verse 19. So Jesus so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. That's in the text. They clarify it. That is Bethlehem. Even to this day, it is commonly Known among the tradition of both Jews and Christians alike, that the tomb of Rachel was a short distance to the north of Bethlehem. In our text, Matthew mentions that Herod was putting to death the children of Bethlehem and in all that region. All that region would certainly include the direct area of Rachel's tomb. When this happened, when Herod put to death all the male children, two years old and younger, the people of Israel were brought again to a deep collective sorrow for the loss of their children, just like during the deportation to Babylon. The mothers of Bethlehem would walk by the tomb of Rachel, and it would be as if they could hear the cry of Rachel from her tomb weeping for her children again, weeping for the great love of her children. Despite our sinfulness, the love of a mother is still one of the strongest expressions of selfless love known by this world. Literally every time a mother gives birth to a child, she is risking her life for that child. That's why when a child dies before its mother, it's a tragedy we can't fully grasp. This this part of Jesus' story is hard. It's hard because it's not easy to see the connection to the Old Testament, but it's also hard for another reason. How can we trust God when our children are taken from us? And we know that it's somehow still part of God's plan. How can a mother process the grief of losing her own child when she would give her life for that child? Why would God let that happen? A voice was heard in Rama, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's no consoling a mother who has lost a child. That kind of grief refuses to be comforted. And those of us who have not experienced that, should understand that there's little we can do to help. There's a time for weeping over great loss. But God understands. He does. He knows our hearts. He's the one who gave this poem to Israel in the first place. Your grief is not lost on him. And though it may be hard to trust a God who would allow something like this to happen, this is not the end. If you're struggling with sorrow over the loss of a loved one, I'd encourage you to read the rest of Jeremiah chapter 31. Some translations title Jeremiah chapter 31, The Lord Will Turn Mourning to Joy. This section about Rachel weeping for her children is only one note of sorrow between two greater refrains in God's song of comfort for his people. And Jeremiah 31, 16 through 17, right after our text, turn to that, Jeremiah 31, verse 16. Jeremiah writes this, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is a hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. Your children shall come back to their own country. The sovereign God who declared that Israel would be taken into captivity in the first place is the same sovereign God who could promise with certainty that he would bring them back. Where our babies go when they die is not always clear in Scripture. But I submit to you that Jeremiah 31, 16-17 is about the resurrection of the dead. God can still keep his promise. The sovereign God who allowed Herod, with all his wickedness, to put to death the children of Bethlehem as a part of his plan of redemption is the same sovereign God who can resurrect them to the promised land. This massacre in Bethlehem became known to the early church as the slaughter of the first martyrs. It's hard to think of it, but Matthew is telling us that what happened in Bethlehem was the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Jeremiah 31, verse 15 is about the Babylonian exile, but it's also a plot point in history that was played out again more fully in the life of Jesus. There is little comfort for those who are mourning apart from Jesus. There is no comfort for the dead apart from the resurrection of the dead. What happened in Bethlehem, all that sorrow, pain, and loss, was part of God's plan since the beginning. Whatever evil schemes may arise to snuff out God's plan, They can't. They can only be bent to God's design, an even greater plan. Now there's two ways you can take Matthew's argument here. You can see his argument in a glass half empty sort of way, or you can see the glass as full. Either this argument will satisfy you, or it will not. While the tragedy at Bethlehem may be a crucible for your faith, it can also be a great reason for faith. You can question God's goodness for allowing the massacre at Bethlehem, but you can find comfort in his sovereignty over it. You can trust that Herod meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Finally, let's move to our third and final argument, We've heard two of Matthew's arguments already. Jesus became a refugee of Egypt in fulfillment of the scriptures. A cry from Bethlehem was heard in Ramah in fulfillment of the scriptures. And finally, point number three, Matthew 2, verse 19, Jesus came from Nazareth in fulfillment of the scriptures. Turn turn back to Matthew chapter 2 to verse 19. And we're not going to switch back to the Old Testament, so you can just stay there. Matthew 2, verse 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you think the last two references to the Old Testament were difficult, this one's even more difficult. The previous two references are complicated by the fact that they refer to events in the past, but at least they're direct quotations from Scripture. What we read in verse 23 is not a direct quotation of the Old Testament. In fact, the city of Nazareth is never even mentioned in the whole Old Testament but here's the good news. Matthew phrases verse 23 in a way that suggests he's giving a paraphrase of what the Old Testament has to say. It's phrased this way, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So your, your translation of the Bible probably does not have this text in quotations. Rightfully so, because it's really phrased, it's not really phrased like a direct quotation. But if the Old Testament never even mentions Nazareth explicitly, why would Matthew think that the prophets predicted that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? In John chapter 1, Philip the disciple goes to Nathaniel and tells him that he's found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what it says in John 1, 46. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was actually a common reaction when people heard Jesus was from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth had no historical significance to the people of Israel. And unlike Bethlehem, which was known as the hometown of King David, Nazareth had no ties to the prophets or the messiah. Nazareth was insignificant and archaeological evidence suggests that no more than 500 people lived there at the time. For context, Delphi has 3000 people. So this was significantly smaller than Delphi. So if Jesus was a small town boy so, so if Jesus was a small town boy that would be important to the Jews. That was a problem for them. How could the Messiah come from a town like Nazareth? After all, the Messiah was supposed to come from the town of Bethlehem. Wasn't he? John chapter 7 gives us a really good picture of how the Jews were reacting to Jesus' hometown at the time. In John 7, verse 40, we read this. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division of the people over him. So on the one hand, people knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, which is in Galilee. So how could he be the Messiah? if the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. But in John 7, 27, the people were conflicted for a different reason. This is a different text. Verse 25, it says, some of the people of Israel said, is is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus is being attacked on two fronts. On the one hand, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because his hometown was Nazareth, not Bethlehem. In other words, they thought they knew where he came from. But on the other hand, he couldn't be the Messiah because the people expected they wouldn't know where the Messiah comes from. So why would the Jews expect that no one would know where the Messiah would come from? See, the Old Testament gives us the expectation that the Messiah would be despised and unrecognized by his people, and he wouldn't be taken seriously. In Isaiah 53, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, especially Zechariah and Isaiah, there is this theme that the Messiah would be despised, rejected, and abused by his own people. They would not esteem him. They would not recognize his value or his worth. So while the Bible doesn't explicitly mention the name of Nazareth, the prophets predicted that the people would know the people wouldn't know where Jesus came from. Like a young plant springing up from the ground, Jesus would come out of nowhere. The name Nazareth, Nazareth also has a Hebrew root um, that has a curious connection with the texts about the Messiah being like a plant. Hebrew is a language that doesn't write out their vowels, so all their words are reduced to consonants. So for, like in English, a word like towel... And our language would be spelt T-W-L in Hebrew. And your brain would just fill in the sounds based off of the consonants. That's how they read it. But if you reduce the Greek word for Nazareth down to its consonants, the word is the same word used in Isaiah 11 verse 1, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The word for branch here is the Hebrew word netzer, which you can hear the similarity between netzer and Nazarene. So all these things line up to make a compelling case for why Jesus' upbringing in Nazareth is actually in fulfillment of scripture. Matthew is saying that the prophets predicted that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. First, the prophets predicted that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. Second, the prophets also indicated that the Messiah would spring from obscurity, which is what the references to the plant seem to be indicating. Read with me in Matthew 2, verse 23. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew is saying that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Jesus being called a Nazarene means it was sort of an insult. It's like when you were a kid and you called your friend names. You called them names. You called them a wimp or whatever. Where we put our emphasis in the way we read this kind of determines the way that we interpret it. Nathaniel said, when he was talking to his brother Philip, he said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a small, dinky town. It was a place where you got made fun of if you came from there. This lines up perfectly with how the prophets predicted that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. They would esteem him not. Matthew is also saying that despite all the criticism being thrown at Jesus' hometown... The fact that he came from an obscure town in Galilee is in itself the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus uniquely fulfills both aspects of what the prophets predicted. He was born in Bethlehem, yet his hometown of Nazareth was small and insignificant, and he was despised for it. Again, there's two ways that you can take Matthew's argument here. You can see his argument in a glass half-empty half sort of way, or you can see the glass is full. Either this argument will satisfy you, or it will not. If we just scratch the surface of Matthew's argument here, we could say that Matthew is drawing connections where there is none. It's a fact. The Old Testament never mentions Nazareth. The Bible clearly says that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, so it's easy to take the side of the Jewish people and say, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? But if we look deeper, we see that our own objections are in fulfillment of scripture. You think you can frustrate God's plan by disagreeing with him? Even the Messiah's rejection by his own people was in fulfillment of Scripture. The Old Testament predicted that he would be called a Nazarene. These three arguments Matthew made have one main point. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Jesus became a refugee of Egypt in fulfillment of the scriptures. A cry from Bethlehem was heard in Ramah in fulfillment of the scriptures. And Jesus came from Nazareth in fulfillment of the scriptures. Once you know Jesus and you go back to reading the Old Testament, it's like reading a story after knowing the ending. God weaves themes and shadows of Scripture in a way that they find their fulfillment in Christ. God turns the greatest tragedies in life to his purpose, to the fulfillment of Scriptures. God even turns our own resistance to his plan, to his glory, to the fulfillment of Scripture. I hope today, if you get anything from this sermon that you are filled and convicted by the Spirit of the fullness which can be found in Christ. Don't go away empty. Don't be convinced by your own doubt. When you read the Old Testament, you should find that it's full of knowledge, full of the knowledge of the fullness of Christ. But you can't just scratch the surface. Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He brings the scriptures to their designated end. I pray today that Matthew has convinced us of this point, to the point where we can say with the psalmist, my cup overflows. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. It can be challenging at times when we read it, we won't always understand it. But Lord, your word is full of the riches of the knowledge of Christ. Help us, Lord, when we're reading the Old Testament to see, to see Christ at the fullest. Help us, Lord, allay our doubts and give us faith that so, so we may see just how wonderful Christ is. Thank you, Lord, that he walked out of Egypt, into the promised land, and that he took us with him. Thank you, Lord, that we can return to the promised land because of the work of your son. Our sin can be forgiven in him. In your precious name we pray, Lord. Amen.